Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I took out the maximum amount of loans every semester. Um, And I used the loans mainly to cover living expenses. After I graduated, I went home and took off my, you know, gown and everything and and just felt so guilty for going to college just because I knew the student loan payments were going to kick in in six months or so. And I was really going to struggle with that for the rest of my life. And so it was never something that I felt entitled to or that I even deserved just because it was so extravagant. That's Stephanie Land. And while that student loan may have seemed frighteningly extravagant for a single mother struggling to survive while cleaning houses, it paid off in ways she could never have dreamed of. It paved the way to a book that became a bestseller, then to a television series with tens of millions of viewers. The book was made, hard work, low pay, and a mother's will to survive. Stephanie Land now has a new book out today that tells in gripping detail the backstory of Made, what her life has been like since the book and TV series, and it lays out a devastating case for the need to reform the tattered social safety net. I'm really looking forward to this because your writing is not only so brilliant, but the first book you wrote, Made, became such a phenomenon of communication in this country, explaining one group of us to another. And that's that's so powerful. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, that's, a, that's a new way of describing it. I like that. Uh, encouraging a conversation from one group to the other. Yeah, we don't, you know, because those of us who live above the poverty line don't really know what it's like. We think we can imagine it, but your book is so vivid, it's so immediate and present. It gives us a glimmer of what it must be like, especially because we share so many things with you. Poverty was very sudden for you. You came from a middle-class family, right? Yeah, um, my parents didn't start off that way. Um, They found out they were going to have me when they were 19. And so, um, 
we were very poor when I was a kid. Um, and my mom was the first generation student of our family. And, um, she went on to get her master's and, um, my dad was a electrician. And, and so by the time I was in middle school or high school, I was, you know, considered what used to be middle class. So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it was, um, it was very sudden to find myself, uh, with absolutely no resources. How did that Um, happen? I, I left my boyfriend. (laughs) So, um, the, the father of my child, we were still living together. It was obviously not great. Um, he was, um, very emotionally abusive and, and just really not nice in general. And, um, I finally, you know, decided I needed to leave and he, uh, he punched out a plexiglass window as he was leaving and, and I called the cops and, and so that just kind of set off this whole flurry of, uh, court documents and custody and a bunch of stuff that I, I really didn't know I was getting into until I was there. How old were um, you? I was... 28, I think 29, I was 29. (laughs) Um, And, and so I moved in very briefly with my dad and my stepmom. And then that also didn't work out. And my only option was to move into a homeless shelter. And so when I moved in there, I I only had a, like a hundred dollars, maybe $200. And, and that was it. Um, And I very quickly learned what a precarious situation that is to just literally have nothing. And there isn't really that much support from government services or, you know, you can't walk into an office and say, hey, I need some money to pay rent this month. Um, It just doesn't exist. We hear about all kinds of services that are available, but it's it's a tangle to make your way through it, isn't it? It is. It's it's the equivalent of a a whole other part-time job. Mm. There's different departments for every assistance you may need. So, you know, there's there's a department for utilities and heating bills. There's another one that might have a $10 voucher for gas for your car. Um, there's a different office for child care. There's one for food, obviously. There's And usually the food and the cash assistance are the same. But the cash assistance is so impossible to uh, figure out, really, that nobody really tries anymore, which, in my opinion, is very purposeful, just to discourage people from signing up. And um, and then there's, you know, the, the women, infants, and children, that where you get those um, coupons for milk. Um, and a lot of these appointments that you have with caseworkers are during the business day, and so if you have a job that's during, you know, traditional business hours, then you have to take off work mm. to go to these appointments. It's all very, um, very backwards. Someone recently described it to me as um, you're trying to get out to a good wave in the ocean, but waves keep knocking you back to the shore. And, um, and I, I really liked that metaphor. You know, what struck me reading your books is that we, we hear the term single mother all the time. 
but it's seldom thought of in the same context as being homeless and then having to find some way to have your child taken care of while you're working at a minimum wage job. Yeah, yeah. Um, at, at one point, I heard a statistic that most people who enter um, homeless shelters are, I think it was like somewhere around 70 or 80 percent, um, are are mothers with children who are fleeing domestic violence. Mm. And, and it's incredibly common. And there's a lot of stigma surrounding that, you know, there's a lot of blame put on mothers in general <laughs> as a society. But like for single moms, it's very much, you know, like, well, why did you choose that person to be your kid's dad? And, and it just kind of gets more and more ridiculous from there. And the assistance programs start off with the assumption that you're probably scamming them. At least that's the, the that's the feeling I get. I think from reading your book, very much. And you know, I am I am a, a very white person. <laughs> like uh, I I come into that situation with white privilege, and um, and so from me to write about my experience, it doesn't even come close to what a person of color experiences in that situation. And, um, and so, but there's this, um, I don't even know. It's, it's, I think it's just a general assumption that people don't want to work. And so like they are on food stamps, um, because they just choose to be somehow because, they think it's nice, <laughs> but like... It's... <laughs> and you describe how difficult it is sometimes when you're using <laughs> yeah. the stamps. People look down on you. Absolutely. I would uh, have to sneak into like the grocery store in the off hours and use self-checkout if I was buying like candy for my kids' stocking or something like that because... Someone might feel yeah. you didn't deserve to buy candy if you needed stamps. Yeah, yeah. But in order to get the assistance, I get the impression from your book that you have to prove you have no money or jewels. How do you prove you don't have something? It goes as far as proving that you don't have a burial plot. <laughs> How do you prove that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How do you do that? What what satisfies them? I mean, you check no <laughs> for the question, but like, there's always this fear that they're going to look into it somehow. So, I mean, it's not like, um, it's not a situation where you can just lie. I mean, it's the government. <laughs> and so it's, it's something that you obviously want to be very truthful about, about your situation and everything that you have, because you're in such a precarious position that if you make a mistake somehow, and sometimes that's like your form getting lost in the mail, like mm. then you can't eat. And so, uh, you know, as, as ridiculous as all the questions are, it's still just like, what is going on here? Like, I'm, I'm trying to feed my child. Yeah, and... I was really struck by your account of keeping track all day long on different pieces of paper of what your expenses were and how many dollars and cents you had left before you'd have to figure out if you couldn't pay your rent that month, that you had to be conscious of that all the time. 
That was a very telling account to me because most of us don't have to think about whether or not we're going to be able to pay the rent when we're buying things. But every moment, every purchase of food or toothpaste, you had to see if you could fit it into your budget this week. And you said that at one point you were so close to the edge that you had to exist on peanut butter for the last week of the month. Yeah, I I have a hard time eating peanut butter <laughs> these days. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I had to survive off of it so much. Um, there, it, it was just constant. I mean, it's something that I force myself to think about a lot. Um, when the book first came out, um, five and a half years ago or so, like I, I ended up talking a lot about toilet paper <laughs> because, <laughs> because I, that was one thing that still today, like I, I need toilet paper and I open this door somewhere in my house and and there's a lot of it <laughs> and, and like I can just choose I can't get like, over that yeah that's that's one thing or like I I don't have a fear of running out of shampoo anymore or um or I I take a ridiculous amount of vitamins <laughs> and it's just because I I have the privilege and and ability to and before it was just those were so far out of my means and I mean, like I had an appointment with my therapist this morning who I've been seeing for four years. And, and that was just another thing that was unheard of. And, and I really needed therapy then. That, that really struck me in the book, in the first book you wrote, because we think of the pressures of not having money. But we don't often think of what that can lead to in terms of the damage it does to your emotional well-being, to your health, physical and mental. And you would have these terrible panic attacks, right? Yeah, um, and I I still have them. Um, they just, it's not like you can turn off PTSD. <laughs> mm. uh, and so I, I really thought it was some kind of weakness uh, on my part that I couldn't handle it um, because there's it's ingrained in you to be resilient mm. and to you know, you've got this, I know that you can handle it. And like, even my friends would say that to me. And, and so if I had a moment of weakness where, you know, my, my brain, my body was telling me like, you definitely do not have this. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I felt like I was failing somehow. So you managed to write an account, a very vivid book about what this experience was like for you. And it became a best-selling book called Made. And then it was made into a movie for a series for Netflix, which was hugely popular. It's a big big number. 67 million households have watched it so far. That was an amazing leap forward in your circumstances. What was that like, you know, to, to suddenly have some money and suddenly have fame? People coming up to you in supermarkets who didn't know you? Well, Alan, it was pretty off- <laughs> it was pretty overwhelming and, and traumatizing and um, I nobody really tells you or gives you pointers on how to handle success. Um, and, and I went from food stamps to being a public figure um, to being a bestseller in three years, 
that's why I had therapy this morning. <laughs> Just, I mean, it's, there's so many layers to unravel. There's, um, you know, there's the survivor's guilt um, and there's just this feeling like you're getting away with something. Um, and and then like the my biggest moment in my career happened in the middle of a pandemic. Mm. Um, and and so there was that, too. Um, but I'm also like I'm. I'm really introverted um, in real life and I, I'm, I'm really shy. And so the thing that I really had a hard time with was feeling like I needed to make space for people's emotions um, when they came up and talked to me wherever I was, you know, in the grocery store, picking my kid up from school or, um, and so suddenly, especially after the series came out, people were approaching me and thanking me and, and they were very emotional, but they were also telling me stories about violence that they had experienced mm. um, or that their friend had. And, um, and so that was, that was really difficult for me. I learned a term called secondary trauma. What is that? Uh, it's usually referred to with um, like paramedics and, medical and therapy therapy types uh, where you are experiencing trauma in a, like a secondary way just because someone is having either a traumatic experience next to you that you are taking care of or they are kind of relaying their traumatic story to you uh, and and you or and it triggers a lot of things that you have been through as well and and so I I didn't, I wasn't expecting that. Like the, the book doesn't really focus on domestic violence, um, mostly because I knew my daughter was going to read it. Mm. Um, and so I didn't want that to be the focus. I wanted it more to be the, my reaction to what I was experiencing. Um, and, but then when the series came out, and the series was very focused on domestic violence, obviously, which um, which I really appreciated. Um, I can't think of any other um, visual representation of how um, traumatic and violent emotional abuse can be. Um, so I I loved that they focused on that, but suddenly people were talking to me about it and asking me a lot of questions and it just brought up all of this um physical reactions and and things that i wasn't really expecting um you know but i guess the body keeps the score <laughs> in that way so and you really had to sacrifice some of your own well-being in exchange for the positive effect that the series had I've I've heard that there were more phone calls to the domestic abuse helpline as a result of that series than they had ever had before. Yeah, in the month of October, the series came out in uh, October 1st, 2021. Uh, and in that month, the domestic violence hotline received more calls in that month than they had, you know, on a monthly basis in their entire history.
When we come back from our break, Stephanie Land tells how in her 30s, she juggled cleaning houses with attending college and how that crystallized a lifelong passion for writing into the book Made. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Stephanie Land. We'd been exploring both the personal and public reactions to her first book, Made. So one of the things that came out of this was a new book called Class which really is a prequel to Made, I guess, because it's how Made got made. (laughs) How you became an expert writer and and the experiences you had along the way. How much college had you had before you started writing? Well, I've known that I was going to grow up and be a writer since I was in the fourth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was a daily exercise and habit. Um, I kept journals and diaries, but I didn't go to school for it or anything. Um, And it wasn't until my early 30s that I was in college in writing workshops. This was before Made was written, right? You managed to get to college, even though you were still working as a household cleaner. How did you manage that? How did you find the money to go to college? I didn't. (laughs) I borrowed money. I took out the maximum amount of loans every semester. Um, 
And I used the loans mainly to cover living expenses, which were incredibly low at that time. Like I think about it now and I, my living expenses were usually somewhere around a thousand dollars, give or take, but that worked out almost exact to the amount that I was borrowing in student loans every year. I remember you saying at one point that you expected not to be able to pay off the loans as long as you lived because of the interest. Yeah. You just kept multiplying. That that must have been a feeling not unlike the feeling you had trying to figure out if you had enough money for toothpaste. Well, the the student loans, I... It was just this thing that you never really thought of. Um, Because if you started to think about it, you wouldn't go to school anymore. (laughs) And, And so, like, it was just something that I considered to be an amount of debt that I would carry with me for the rest of my life. Um, I, I had this moment of like, after I graduated, I went home and um, took off my, you know, gown and everything and, and just felt so guilty for, mm. for going to college just because I knew the student loan payments were going to kick in in six months or so. And, and, and I was really going to struggle with that for the rest of my life. And, and I, you know, as a person with anxiety, of course that snowballs into, I failed my kids. I'm not going to be able to put them through college. And, um, so it, it was never something that I felt entitled to or that I even deserved just because it was so extravagant. And you had no idea that you'd even be able to make some kind of living from writing. What did you hope? That maybe you'd be a teacher or what? That was the original plan. Um, I I wanted to get my um, master's degree uh, and master's of fine arts um, so that I could teach on a college level. I, had a, I assumed that that would be a good job and job security and, um, and it would be something that could offer benefits and, and that I, I could do happily. So when I found out that I didn't get into the MFA program, I had to readjust my goals and all of my visions and, and everything. And, and I ended up, uh, learning how to freelance and, just kind of got lucky and and had a essay go viral uh, that eventually turned into the book made. Um, but that's I started getting a lot of jobs because everyone had read that essay. And I remember a couple of wonderful scenes in the book where you got encouragement, especially from one teacher who had looked at a short piece you wrote and called it solid gold. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading it and thinking, boy, this is so vivid and concrete. What it was like to clean out bathrooms of men who didn't flush the <laughs> toilets. There's yeah. something so clear about that. <laughs> so the solid gold moment was as clear as imagining an unflushed toilet. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it's hard to miss the feeling you must have gone through. And the other thing that sticks in my mind about encouragement was the teacher who read your essay, well, she read it in the coffee shop? Yeah, yeah. She read the the Confessions of the Housekeeper was what I was calling it back then. And you were off getting coffee 
And you came back with your coffee and and she said what? She said, Stephanie, this is going to be a movie. <laughs> this needs to be a book. Don't you see how this needs to be a book? Yeah, it's so important, that kind of encouragement from people you trust. So important, isn't it? It's priceless. I mean, it's uh, it can change the course of your life uh, to have especially a person in authority, a person who is a mentor and, you know, a person who is like literally teaching you to tell you that you're good, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, you know, that, that you're a very good writer. There's, there's another, that scene in the book where she, it's Deborah Magpie Erling. Um, she told my daughter in front of me, you know, your mom is a very good writer and I'm, my daughter doesn't remember that moment, but I'll never forget it. Yeah. It's, yeah. But you didn't always get encouragement. I remember you were bringing your daughter to the writing class, the, the undergraduate writing class, right? And then you were told by the MFA professor something not very encouraging about bringing your daughter to class. What, what was that? When I first approached um, the head of the department about wanting to get an MFA, um, she told me babies don't belong in grad school. And I never understood that. One, because she had children when she was in grad school. Um, but also, why not? Like, mm. why, just because I have kids, I can't get an MFA degree? Like, that just, it doesn't make sense to me. You don't want to bring real things into writing class. I guess not. <laughs> Your writing might get real. <laughs> I can't bring the subject matter. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was a very striking scene where you told your daughter that you were pregnant and, and you both chose a name for the new baby. It seems like you had a very special relationship with her through the years that you had this, this tug of war with poverty. Was she more knowing, do you think? What's been the effect on her? Um... Story, she goes by her middle name uh, now is uh, Story. She is the most incredible human being I've ever known. She, um, I mean, I will say I am biased um, and hanging out with her is kind of like hanging out with myself because we're so, <laughs> I mean, we, we look alike. I don't always see it. And then like we talk alike. We have the same sense of humor, like same music although she's 16 now so she's w listening to some weird music but <laughs> i'm just like really where did this come from um but no she handed me her playlist and that i that's all i listen to right now um so she has become a person that is beyond my dreams of of what i wanted for her um and and we are very close. We 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 do we had a very different relationship and environment. Like when she was little, then you know, my youngest is now nine and she never experienced food or housing insecurity. Like she um she just kind of had a different life. And Story actually brought that up once. Um I was talking about how I Coraline would possibly need to be home alone after school for a few minutes. Um, 
and and that I wasn't sure and if that was good for her. And and then I said to Story, I said, but by when you were her age, like you just had to. Like it was like seven or eight years old. And I said, you know, I I had to have you home alone every once in a while. Um or like she knew to go to the neighbors after school or things like that because I was uh, working or otherwise busy in some way. And, um, and I said, you know, it's, it's so different that just how you two are in, in that, in that sense. And, and she said, yeah, well, Coraline had a very different life than I did. Mm -hmm. And, and so that, that really just, I, I bring that up all the time because it really speaks to just, I don't know. It was, it was a moment of like compassion, but it was also this like really acute self-awareness. Um, and and I, I think, I don't know, Story and I sometimes like we get nostalgic for the times it was just me and her. Um, mm. I try to do stuff with her alone uh, as much as possible. Like last year I got to take her to Lizzo and in Seattle and, uh, we went, she took, came with me to Seattle once and we got to meet Neil Gaiman, who, uh, was the person who kind of came up with the name Coraline. And, um, so it's, it's really nice to be able to just have one-on-one -on -one time with her. I want to ask you something you mentioned a number of times in the book, in, in, in both books that there seems to be a systematic nature to poverty. And many aspects of the, the ordeal that the impoverished person has to go through to get any assistance is deliberate in some way. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah. Um, so our country relies on low-wage work, especially domestic work. The people who clean up after us, that's the work that makes all other work possible. It's not a great job um, <laughs> from experience. It's it's not fun to find a toilet that hasn't been flushed and and now you have to clean it. And I I think there's a lot of purpose in keeping poor people poor so that they are desperate enough for work that they will do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. There's a lot of racism wrapped into that. There's a lot of blame and stigma and, and, you know, it's been going on since forever and like the Reagan administration and, and the stories that he would tell. So I have always seen it as part of the myth that we live by as Americans, the pull yourself up by the bootstraps um, so that you can live the American dream. But what they don't consider is that people don't have any shoes. You've done an enormous favor to the whole culture to, to help us see what the problem is in such fine detail. I'm one of those people to thank you for what you may be tired of hearing. Thank you. That from you, Alan Alda. <laughs> We're running out of time, but we always end our conversations with seven quick questions. Oh, goodness. Okay. Of all the things you could understand, what do you wish you really understood? You know, um, I just got a horse. 
story. It's technically Story's horse, but I I am her groom. Um, I am the one who caretakes. So like I've I've kind of been thrown into this world of of horse people and and people who know a lot about horses and I have wanted a horse my entire life and and I knew nothing <laughs> and so that would be one thing that I would like to understand a little bit more is, is how to take care of my horse <laughs> so you help us understand what it's like to be a maid now you're understanding what it's like to be a horse I guess so so you're crossing <laughs> over another boundary okay next question how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Oh, boy. It depends on the situation. I'm a huge fan of per my last email or, <laughs> um, or just saying, you know, while that might be your perspective, um, I kind of like throwing in a well actually and, and having a having a moment to mansplain a little bit. Um, <laughs> so I get a little creative with that. <laughs> Okay, next. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, goodness. Oh, I get a lot of, like, questions on cleaning tips. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> someone, like, <laughs> someone wanted really detailed information of how I got toilet bowls clean with a pumice stone. And th so that was, a, that, was, <laughs> that was an odd one. <laughs> how do you stop a compulsive talker? Well, I try just by default to uh, not engage. <laughs> I'm thinking of like people on planes, you know, like I am very obviously involved in whatever I have in front of me, whether it's a book or my phone. And like I have headphones on, even if I'm not listening to anything. And just I, I try very much to not be approachable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? Usually if I make some kind of comment that is very blatant and, you know, something that is kind of stark um, or just very vulnerable about myself, you know, like that usually encourages people to... to talk a little bit like okay she's cool i can be real with her <laughs> good technique okay next to last what gives you confidence boy i wish i knew um you know i i in the context of public speaking um i i get a lot of confidence from from laughter um when when i'm trying to be funny that helps. <laughs> okay, last question. What book changed your life? Phew. Um, the one that probably comes to mind the most is Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck. Huh. Um, because I read that in the middle of winter in Fairbanks, Alaska. I had been there for quite a few years, and the section where he talks about Montana was what got me to where I live now in Missoula, Montana. Hmm. So I, I would say that's pretty life-changing. Yeah, it certainly is. And this conversation has been that to some extent, too. And I'm, I'm really glad we had it. 
Thank you for making the time for this. I know you've had to take time out from talking to thousands of people about your books and your life. So I appreciate it very much. Oh, goodness. Thank you. Thank you for reading my books before you talked to me and, and having, such, <laughs> having such wonderful questions. I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was absolutely thrilled to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. Stephanie Land's breakthrough book was made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. Her new book, published today, is Class, a memoir of motherhood, hunger, and higher education. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Marcus Dusotoy. He's a renowned mathematician and professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford University. But his true passion is games. And I think there's something rather wonderful about playing a game together because you're actually sharing a space and exploring, in a way, each other's consciousness. It's a bit like a dance when you play a game with somebody. And just in the same way as we sat around the campfire telling stories as a way of sharing our inner worlds and exploring the inner worlds of the other, um, I think is maybe one of the motivations for why games are so popular. Marcus Dusotoy's new book explores what games will tell you about a country. Around the world in 80 games. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. 
At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.